Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, the 1950 Vancouver, Washington murder of Joanne Dewey. So here she walks and she turns the corner to at uh, 12th Street to see this, this great bulk of the hospital just two blocks away and the lights were on and she almost made it just 60 feet away from the door. In fact, her screams were heard by the nurses in the hospital. She was that close to safety. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy Thanksgiving. So I am very pleased to have as my guest today Pat Gelata. She worked as a civilian employee for 22 years in the Los Angeles Police Department, where her husband worked as a sergeant. She moved to England for a year, and she's lived in Vancouver, Washington now since 1982, and active in the Clark County Historical Society. She has also written eight books, and the one she's here to talk about today is called The Murder of Joanne Dewey in Vancouver, Washington. Great to have you here. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. So this story, is it one that is remembered pretty vividly by people who live in Vancouver today? Even today, it was unique, and it fascinated me because it divided the community. Uh, There were those who felt that uh, the two suspects were framed because the police just didn't like them. Uh, There were those who were positive that they were guilty. And a few thought, well, hey, those boys just need hanging. Uh, But it, it, it echoes down. When the book came out, I received a lot of calls from, you know, very elderly people, in fact, that uh, were still afraid of them uh, and their family. And when I had my uh, 
when I had my uh, uh, kickoff, my book signing kickoff, uh, the Wilson family showed up at the book signing. And uh, it was at a local bookstore. And they made their way behind the stacks and came out behind me. Uh, so I figured, okay, I've got uh, 85 witnesses sitting here in the audience. I'm going to introduce these people. <laughs> so I did indeed introduce them and let them tell why their relatives had not done this murder. And then they were okay. The, the anger was dissipated just by letting them speak their piece. But I'll tell you, it, it's, uh, it's, it's nervous-making to have the uh, family suddenly show up behind you. Oh, I can't even imagine. What, a, what an experience. Uh, that must have been uncomfortable in the extreme. Oh, indeed. But I was confident of my facts. Uh, I spent, a, I was fortunate in that I had so many people send me data, hardcore data, uh, almost every day of it. So I was confident. Yeah, yeah. So what led you to write this book? Well, as uh, uh, I was uh, a curator of education at the Clark County Historical Museum, also for 20 years. I seem to have a 20-year attention span. Uh, so for 20 years, I was in the museum. And coming from Los Angeles, of course, I knew very little about the community I was in. So they were uh, they had the bound copies of all of the newspapers. And so I sat down every day when I had nothing else to do. And I would read the newspapers going back to 1850. And I came upon this murder. And I could not figure out, number one, how they got to the Wilson brothers so quickly. How did they get to them? And then reading on further, I couldn't figure out from the newspaper how in the world they convicted them. Because the, the, the real nitty-gritty wasn't in the newspaper. So I just began to dig, just trying to satisfy in my own mind, how did this all go down? And the story was so fascinating. I mean, good heavens, in the middle of it, the sheriff gets arrested for crying out loud. It was a book that really just needed to be read and uh, and written. And when uh, when Arcadia's sister organization, History Press, called me and asked if I knew of a true crime that would make a good book, I was this, you know, oh, hey, boy, howdy, I've got one for you. So that's how it came to be written. So we have people listening here from all over the world, uh, people who hear Vancouver and think Canada, I'm sure. But would you describe where Vancouver, Washington is and what it is like? Oh, certainly. Well, it's the original Vancouver. We had the name 65 years before Vancouver Junior up in Canada uh, changed their name to Vancouver. <laughs> uh, we're on the banks of the Columbia River, one mile from Portland, Oregon. Uh, we share the river with Portland. There's just a couple of bridges 
uh, connecting us. And uh, uh, it's a, a most unusual, unusual city. We do things just a little differently. Uh, for, as a, for instance, in World War II, we had a shipyard here. We had Alcoa uh, aluminum mill here. We had the army here. It's been an army town since uh, 1849 until just recently when the, uh, when the Pentagon shut down our army base. Uh, we had to build thousands of homes for the shipyard workers and the aluminum workers that were coming in. The same thing happened across the river in Portland. They also had shipyards and uh, uh, war housing work to be built. In Portland, if you were a person of color, you went to a neighborhood called Albina or a special housing project they built called Vanport. In Vancouver, we said the next people in get the same uh, housing, regardless of race. And that's the way we operated from then on, was that uh, a trainload of people would come in from Alabama, which you were mostly black. Uh, they got the next housing across the street. They would be all white. And when the war was over and we began tearing down the wartime housing, our mayor and our city council declared it a uh, would be a non-segregated town. And this is in 1945. And they formed a fair housing commission to make sure that happened. So we do things a little differently here. It sounds like it, yeah. So tell us about Joanne Dewey, uh, would you? How old was she? What was her life like in March of 1950 before terrible tragedy befell her? Yes, Joanne... Her religion was important to the story. Joanne was a Seventh-day Adventist, and there was a small uh, Seventh-day Adventist community called Meadowglade, where Joanne grew up. Uh, she was a, a, a pretty girl on her way to being a beautiful woman. A uh, little pudgy, as uh, some 18-year-olds are. And she took a job as uh, working in a Seventh-day Adventist nursing home in Portland. She had gone to the Seventh-day Adventist Academy. All of these things kept popping up during the investigation based on her, uh, her faith. Uh, for instance, there was a woman who claimed that she had a charm bracelet that Joanne was wearing. Well, Joanne would not have worn a charm bracelet at a Seventh-day Adventist nursing home. That, that faith, it doesn't forbid such jewelry, but it, uh, it doesn't encourage it. So in a, a, an institution like that, she would not have been wearing it. So these things uh, popped up throughout. Uh, they were able to tell that her time of death uh, because she had eaten a meat substitute that was only served at that nursing home. And she had a relationship with one of the church pastors. With a deacon, yes. Deacon. And uh, when she was a teenager, and he was a married man, 
And that was a uh, a blow to her as a naive young woman, thinking he was actually going to marry her. And that's one reason she left Meadowblade and went to uh, Portland. So she was 18 years old. I, I think at 18, I probably would have thought nothing of walking from 5th Street to 13th Street at 11 o'clock at night. Today, as a mature woman, there is no way in the world I would do it. But perhaps in those days, I, I, I might have, not realizing the dangers of this world. Speaking of those dangers, would you walk us through that evening for her? She started her night in Portland, right, with the ultimate goal of getting back home. Yes, she she wanted to go home for the weekend. She'd gone out with her roommate, and they had. She did not drink, but they went to some bars. They went to a movie. Uh, just youthful nonsense uh, banter that we all did when we were that age. And then she took the Greyhound bus from Portland to downtown Vancouver, and in the uh, Portland. Uh, bus terminal, she had just missed the Greyhound bus to Meadowglade, just by a matter of minutes. And she called home. Uh, her mother was working nights at another uh, Seventh-day Adventist nursing home, told her she, she couldn't uh, come and get her. Uh, she advised her to walk to our town hospital, St. Joseph's, where most of the nurses were also Seventh-day Adventists, and to spend the night there in the nurses' quarters and then ride home with one of the young women who lived in Meadowglade. And that seemed like a suitable answer, rather than wait for several hours in the bus terminal for the next bus to Meadowglade, which would have put her home about three o'clock in the morning. So she set out from the bus terminal to walk. It was drizzling lightly. Uh, it, was an, it was a new moon, so it was very dark. Uh, light drizzled, very few street lights in 1950. Just five years before, there would have been hundreds of people on the street with the shipyards and the uh, aluminum company. Uh, but now there weren't. They had moved on to other jobs, moved out of town. Uh, I can imagine her heels clicking and echoing off the uh, closed storefronts. So many businesses had shut down that had been open for that. Uh, say we'd gone from 18,000 to 85,000 people in four months because of the shipyards. At the end of the war, we went down to about 30,000. We never went back to what we were before, but the, the, the big population had left. So the stores, many shops, businesses had shut down when the people left. So here she walks, and she turns the corner to at uh, 12th Street to see this this great bulk of the hospital just two blocks away 
and the lights were on. And she almost made it just 60 feet away from the door. In fact, her screams were heard by the nurses in the hospital. She was that close to safety. And people came out of the, uh, people came out of the apartments. Uh, among them a county supervisor, uh, among them a, a veterinarian, a man who on the uh, upstanding citizens came out and saw this woman being beaten. And one of the Wilson brothers said, she's my wife and she's had too much to drink. And everybody, oh, okay, they backed off. That's the way it was in 1950. A man could beat his wife and not much would be done about it. You mentioned briefly the Wilsons, uh, the family showing up at your book reading, and just now the Wilson brothers being responsible for her beating, uh, her abduction, her death. Yes. Tell us about the Wilsons, uh, if you don't mind, um, their reputation in Vancouver. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Utah and Terman. Uh, Terman had just gotten out of prison for a kidnap and rape that had been done in uh, the St. John's area of uh, Portland some 10 years before. And he and two of his other brothers had kidnapped two schoolgirls off the street, uh, raped them. Terman wanted to kill them. He had a, uh, a gun. And the other brothers didn't want to do that. Uh, all three were captured. Uh, the girls identified them, and Terman made the remark that if he ever did it again, he would leave no witnesses. They all went to prison. Uh, Terman and uh, one of his other brothers escaped from prison, ran, were captured, and uh, uh, put back in prison. Uh, Utah, who was the youngest of the family, uh, had uh, just been married three months, and he got married as soon as he got out of uh, the reform school, the uh, uh, boys' correctional facility just north of, of Vancouver. He was a burglar and uh, was a suspect in the shooting of a town constable in the town of Woodland, Washington and also in a, uh, an armed robbery that had happened sometime before. A teacher at their school when they were in grammar school had said that the Wilson boys must have male teachers. They are barely controllable with a male teacher and not controllable at all with a woman teacher. So it was a, it was one of these, uh, uh, I tried to trace them through city directories, but they were the, uh, you know, move at midnight kind of people. So it was hard to keep track of them. One of their burglaries that uh, uh, they broke into a bakery to steal the bit of money that was left in the register and ran their fingers through the wedding cakes that were sitting there just, just to destroy them. It was that sort of background. So here was a large family, the Wilsons, and a large family, the Deweys. One raised in 
uh, a pious church-going Sunday potluck at the church kind of a family. And the other, well, the, uh, the parents uh, got married uh, after, uh, after this event, after the Joanne Dewey event, which uh, today is uh, accepted. But back in the 1950s, it was not considered respectable at all. The dad was no saint either, was he? No, the dad had also been in prison for rape. So it was a kind of a family uh, family hobby, I guess you might say. And uh, the one brother uh, would not get out of prison until uh, Tom McCall pardoned him in 1975 uh, for health reasons. He had contracted uh, uh, tuberculosis. Actually, two families could have been so much alike. Uh, and the mother of the one, uh, the, the Mrs. Wilson, uh, she refused ever to believe that her boys had done anything wrong, that they had just gotten into bad company. And uh, one by one, as they died, she gathered them up and buried them to get from wherever they were when they died. She brought them back and buried them in one section of the Camas uh, Cemetery. The one brother, Graham, had gotten friendly with a, uh, a religious family and spent most of his time with them rather than his own family. And he was the only one that did not go to prison. So something to be said for the uh, church-going families of that era. When we come back from a break, Pat Gelada tells the story of Joanne's fatal encounter with the Wilson brothers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So, eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, 
including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Back to the show. How did Terman and Utah Wilson end up in the same place as Joanne Dewey? Uh, They were waiting for a woman to come by. I think that from the time of night that they were there, that was the time of night that the nurses changed shifts. So sitting outside the hospital, very good chance a nurse would walk by. And uh, instead it was Joanne coming the other way. So it was just she was in the wrong place as they were waiting for just anyone. Uh Utah was living with his mother-in-law just a couple of blocks down the road. So he knew when the shifts changed. So she was brutally beaten, as you mentioned, in full view of witnesses. Yes. The police were called, but of course they got there too late. That's right. That's right. These these people... Uh, in fact, they were, you know, quite, of course, criticized after the fact, but they were simply reflecting the view that uh, obviously the woman had done something wrong. And that was the view in the 50s of domestic violence, unfortunately. It took us a long time to get away from that. So when police arrived at the scene, what did they find? What, what evidence was left behind? You know, I was so impressed with their handling of that crime scene for 1950. Uh, And number two, I was impressed that they had a police woman uh, whom they called to the scene because it was a domestic situation, they thought. But what they did, they got everybody up on the lawn away from the crime scene, and they walked abreast down the street, step by step, and pick up everything, everything on the street. That For 1950, that was an incredible treatment of a crime scene. 
And uh, they found a barrette, they found a button, they found uh, some things that had been uh, uh, lost by Joanne at the time. They didn't know that, of course. And there was a beer bottle, a stubby-necked Olympia beer bottle. And it had big bubbles in it. Now, personally, I didn't know how long it took bubbles to stay big. And so I bought a stubby-necked bottle of beer, and I brought it home, and on a cool afternoon, I rolled it down the street. If it had fallen out of the truck, or out of the car, if it had fallen, it would have broken. So it rolled out of the car when, uh, as it was Utah that was drinking the beer. Uh, and so I took it out in the street, and I rolled the beer down the street and timed the bubbles. And my neighbors are used to me now. They don't even question <laughs> if I'm out rolling beer bottles down the street. Uh, and 11 minutes was as long as I could get bubbles to stay large. So that meant whoever dropped that bottle of beer was there at the time the crime occurred. It put whoever had that beer bottle right there. They took the beer bottle, picked it up. He borrowed tongs from one of the neighbors and uh, out of their kitchen, one of the people, witnesses. And he picked the beer bottle up with the tongs and put it in a paper bag. Uh, and they immediately took the fingerprints off of it. And that is what led to Utah, was those fingerprints, because he had just gotten out of the... Uh, a correctional institute. Wow. Well, well, on a side note, I hope you didn't waste that beer. Uh, I hope you properly disposed of it. <laughs> well, I had to have enough in there to roll down the street. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, the investigation itself. It was strange, crazy. And part of the reason was that there was friction almost immediately between the sheriff's office, the Vancouver Police Department, and even the state police, right? Well, the, the county, the state police were great. In fact, uh, one state uh, patrolman kind of got the sheriff out of the situation he found himself in with the, uh, uh, with the problem. Oh, that's another story that we can talk about later. But uh, yes, the sheriff had no experience in law enforcement. The real sheriff had had a stroke and had to retire. And the uh, county supervisors, uh, since the sheriff was a Democrat, they had to appoint another Democrat. And they said there were no candidates that had any law enforcement experience. So they appointed Earl Anderson, who was a uh, uh, president of the Machinist Union, had been on the Vancouver Housing Authority Board during the war, uh, was an up-and-coming political hack. And uh, so they appointed him as sheriff. Well, of course, the appointment lasts until the next election. And he was doing great. He was a great manager. I have to give this to him. He was a great manager. He was saving money for the county. He was running the, the department more efficiently. 
he was letting his deputies do the work. Uh, when uh, uh, when this happened, uh, his friends all told him, "Hey, you're getting great ink. Take advantage of this. The more ink you get, the more apt you are to get elected to the job come election." Because this happened in April, election was going to be, of course, in November. So he was calling press conferences with his version of uh, the day's events, and he had no idea in the world what he was talking about. On the other hand, the chief of police had been on since 1937. His detectives all had gray hair, uh, and they're doing a step-by-step, plod-plod, uh, efficient investigation while they had this gadfly bouncing off the walls trying to get press space. So, yes, there was indeed friction, and it really came to the head when Joanne's body was found in Skamania County, which is the adjoining county to us. And the Skamania Sheriff, according to protocol, called the Clark County Sheriff. The Sheriff did not inform the Chief of Police. He simply grabbed a photographer and dashed out to the scene. And the state patrolman who identified Joanne's body was the state patrolman who arrived on the scene during the sheriff's contretemps with the family. That's the story that we have to tell next of what happened to the sheriff and how he wound up having to be arrested. Please, yeah, I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I do talk a lot, don't I? Uh, <laughs> all right, when before they found Joanne, there was a fella called Joanne's mother and said that he had information on the whereabouts of her daughter. And she called this state patrolman, who was a friend of the family, and said, what should I do? And he said, tell him to come out to the house, call the sheriff, because Meadowglade is in the county, call the sheriff, I'll be there as soon as I can. Well, uh, we had been plagued with uh, safe crackers. Kids today don't know what a safe cracker is. That was somebody who would break into a safe and take the money. And his two deputy detectives had broken the case and arrested the safe crackers. To celebrate, he bought a fifth of whiskey, took it into the sheriff's department, which today is a forbidden thing. Uh, and the three of them, now there are 27 shots in a fifth of whiskey. I looked it up which meant the three of them each had nine shots if they divided it equally. The call comes in from Joanne's mother. The sheriff and the two detectives, drunk on their legal behinds, got in the police car and rolled out to Meadowglade. When they got there, they found that the suspect was a known child molester. And rather than listen to what this child molester might have to say, uh, they got into a, a, a beef. And he wound up throwing the guy out of the house, dragging him 65 feet. I found out after I wrote the book that they took his pants off. I didn't know that or that would have been in the book. Uh, 
So while all this is going on, Mrs. Dewey is trying to find out what the guy knows, and the sheriff knocked her on her behind. At this point, the state patrolman pulls up. He's got a drunk sheriff and two drunk deputies. Now, under most states, the only one who can arrest the sheriff is the coroner. So the state patrolman could not arrest him. All he could do was tell him to get in the police car and get out of there, which he did. Uh, the next day, the uh, Dewey family went to the commissioner's wanted him them to fire him, which they could not because he was the same as if he had been elected. They would have to recall him. <laughs> this all gets very complicated. So they finally swear out a warrant, and yes, the county coroner did arrest the sheriff. And he went to trial for drunken disorderly and was found guilty. And the coroner, by the way, <laughs> his expertise was that he owned the ambulance company. And that was it. <laughs> that was all he had. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah, it, uh, the, the, the sheriff, by the way, was not, re was not elected. Uh, he got knocked out in the primary, as a matter of fact. Oh, goodness. So tell us how they, they followed up with the, the beer bottle. The fingerprint on the beer bottle. Uh, they had this uh, as fingerprint, and a Portland detective who had prosecuted, or who had investigated and arrested Terman for the first kidnap rape, called the chief of police and said, "You know, this M.O. is just like Terman's, and he's just gotten out of prison. I'd look at him." So they had the fingerprint and. No, it was not Terman, uh, which was a disappointment. And they continued their investigation, and then someone said, hey, wait a minute, there's yet another Wilson who's just gotten out of confinement. And that's when they matched Utah's print to that beer bottle. That is, so it didn't take long. It really didn't take long. I was that, That's why reading the newspaper, I couldn't. They didn't go into detail of how they got to the Wilson brothers. That's why I kept digging and digging. And fortunately, I have a lot of friends uh, in town, mainly, I think, from being on city council for so long. And also, I helped found an organization called the uh, uh, Children's Justice Center, which uh, investigates and prosecutes felony crimes against children. And one of our prosecutors called me and he said, hey, I've got these old true detective magazines about a weird murder here in Vancouver. Would you like to have them? Well, yes, I would. And they were true detective and master detective magazines that were printed between the time the brothers were arrested and the time that the trial started. So it was step-by-step step of the investigation. Then a detective, the Vancouver police were moving into a new building, and a detective called me that he had a scrapbook that was full of clippings about, again, this old murder. Did I want them? See, 
people give me their their leftovers. Uh, one of our judges, Judge John Woolley, was moving his office. He had the Supreme Court uh, decision uh, upholding their conviction. And then to cap it all off, uh, I'm on the board of the uh, Police Athletic League also. And one of our officers on that board was the grandson of one of the officers, one of the sheriff's deputies on that case. And he had his murder book day by day. Every false lead, every dead end, every communication, every telegram. Uh, it was absolutely a bonanza to have that. And he was cleaning out his uh, granddad's uh, basement after his granddad passed away. Found this murder book and uh, asked me if I wanted it. So I, I have all of these things here now and uh, all of the pure data. And then I find out that Earl Stanley Gardner of Perry Mason fame, uh, had been called to come in. And he had an organization called the Court of Last Resort. And it was prosecutors, it was uh, retired prison wardens, it was uh, just this whole cadre of experts. And if there was a uh, indication of a false arrest or a false imprisonment, they would go in and they would investigate and if they found that an innocent person had been convicted, they could, you know, appeal for them. And then it would be written up in Argosy magazine and everybody would get paid. So uh, actually the governor uh, asked Earl Stanley Gardner to come in and look at this. And he came in with his group and found that there was absolutely not any indication of a false arrest or a false imprisonment, but he complimented the prosecuting attorney, R. DeWitt Jones, fulsomely for the work he did and the actually the abuse he had to take from the other side. And so all and and I found that this whole Earl Stanley Gardner report was in the governor's archives in Olympia. All I had to do was ask for it and I got a copy of that as well. So just uh I really almost had too much detail about it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you didn't complain about that. <laughs> Not a bit. Not a bit. Now, R. DeWitt Jones, the prosecutor in the trial, uh, was our longest serving prosecuting attorney. And I quite fell in love with him as I uh, uh, researched this. And I needed a photograph of him for. Uh, the book. And I called a prosecuting attorney who's a friend of mine. Oh, they call them district attorneys in other places, but uh, we call them prosecuting attorneys. And I asked her a photograph. We didn't have one. I said, oh, for crying out loud. You know, this guy was a legend. So then I called the Bar Association. They didn't have one. I called our county treasurer, who's also a, a history buff and has hundreds of photos. He didn't have one. And I went to a tea with the ladies of the PEO, which is a women's philanthropical group. And I was bemoaning this fact. And one of the women said, well, for heaven's sakes, his daughter is a member of this organization. So 
okay. I called the daughter and I said, I really need a photograph of your dad. And she said, well, just what do you intend to say about my father? And I said, well, I'm in love with him, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so she sent me just a, a, a collection of wonderful photographs of her father, which went in the book. And it was it was that. It was everything, anything I needed for that book was suddenly right there. It's almost as if the story wanted to be told. So how did the police find the Wilson brothers? Uh, because they ran. They ran. They ran to California. And remember, I we talked about the one good brother. Uh, earlier, we talked about Grant, the one brother that didn't go to prison, the one that uh, had uh, uh, taken up with an Assembly of God family. Uh, and the police felt that, that Grant knew more than he was telling. And so he went. they went out and talked to him again and asked him where the brothers were because they had borrowed his car. Uh, he let them use his car uh, whenever he needed to. Uh, and so... He said he wanted to talk to his minister, and the minister came out and told him, you know, Grant, it's in God's hands. If the boys are innocent, God will make sure they're cleared, but you have to tell the truth. That is God's will. And so he did. He told them where they were in California, and uh, the FBI scooped them up. Uh, Sacramento police scooped them up, the FBI, and uh, they... Uh, brought them back. <laughs> the, uh, uh, and again, the animosity between the sheriff and the chief of police showed because uh, they asked the uh, chief if he was going to California with the sheriff to, uh, to pick the boys up. And he said, well, I will if I'm invited. Oh, oh come on, Harry. That was, anyway. So they did bring them back, yes. And, uh, and they attempted an escape. Uh, from our county jail, which uh, went badly. And uh, the trial was a circus, uh, packed house, uh, trying to get a seat. I mean, that's all that was in the newspaper was this trial. But it was uh, so much of, of what the ladies were wearing. And uh, poor Utah's 16-year-old bride you know, can you imagine being 16 years old, married three months, and your husband is on trial for his life for a rape kidnap? Uh, the poor girl never had a chance. But they were indeed found guilty. And I went, uh, I had all of that information uh, thanks to the prosecutor that gave me the. Uh, the magazines and the judge that gave me information. And then I had another friend who's a, a, a judge that's a, a personal friend of mine. And what I would do is, as I wrote a trial, I would ask Judge Clark, you know, please read this and tell me if I've got it right. And she would read it. And I think she really only... Uh, I had written that while the jury was out, and she said the judge would have said in the absence of the jury. So it was little details like that that she corrected. And uh, 
just I it was so important to me to get it right. When we come back to my interview with Pat Gelata, what really happened to Joanne Dewey and the Wilson brothers meet their final fate? Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. We're back to the show. The Wilson brothers had a, had a pretty decent attorney, didn't they? Oh, they had an incredible attorney. Wow. Really. Uh, if you can imagine, this guy, uh, I, I have forgotten right now how many murder trials he had worked on and had never had a guilty verdict before this one. Uh, an incredible number of trials. But he also, uh, he had defended a Russian Navy officer who was found in the captain's cabin of an American destroyer. And he had been arrested for espionage. And he got him off. Can you imagine in the 50s? 
getting a Russian officer caught in a compromising situation on an American destroyer and getting him off. Also, he had gotten uh, uh, Terman off on a uh, robbery charge. After Terman got out of prison, uh, he committed a robbery uh, with a gun, and this attorney got it uh, knocked down to a, uh, a theft. Here's a felon with a gun, and he gets the charge knocked down to it. Incredible attorney. Absolutely an incredible attorney. What was the defense's strategy? Uh, their strategy was that they didn't do it, that uh, they had an alibi that they'd been in a movie theater in Portland at the time of the killing, and therefore they could not have done it. That was their defense, that uh, they were elsewhere at the time. And they had uh, an usherette. I don't think the kids today either know what an usherette was, but these were uh, young women, and there were a few men, also called ushers, who would show you to your seat in a movie theater with a little flashlight. And the one uh, usherette testified that she had seen the boys at the movie theater at the time of the killing. Unfortunately, she in the uh, uh, employee record showed that she was not working that night. The uh, prosecuting attorney wanted to charge her with perjury. He really did, but uh, he felt that he had just had all he could take of that trial and, uh, and let it go. From the point when she was abducted, what do you think happened to her? What, what, what transpired after that? Well, of course, she had been savagely beaten and her jaw was broken. And she was face down in the back seat of the car uh, with a leaking uh, exhaust pipe. So she was unable to move away from the carbon monoxide gas. So she actually died of uh, the carbon monoxide poisoning. She was dead by the time they raped her. She was uh, anally raped after death. Did the brothers uh, dispose of her body immediately? Yes, yes. Uh, they took her to, uh, well, there's a, a resort. Uh, Carson Hot Springs. Carson Hot Springs. It's a wonderful place. I go there whenever I can. Yep. Uh, but near there, and they had worked there, so they uh, they knew the territory. and they went out on a footbridge carrying her body and tossed her into the river, thinking that she would be carried out into the Columbia and thence to sea and would never be found. But the river wasn't high enough. In April, the river is traditionally low in April. It would not be until May or June before the uh, snow melt uh, filled the, the river with enough to take her body away. So she was face down on the rocks, and two fishermen had been fishing further up the Wind River without luck, and they walked down uh, to the uh, footbridge, and there they found her body. And... Uh, one fellow said, you know, I was in the war, and 
And I've seen people, you know, beat up pretty bad, but nothing, you know, as bad as this young lady was beat up. So, so many things about this case were unbelievable. So many twists and turns, uh, which is why I couldn't get anything from the uh, newspaper uh, in the first place, and which is what fascinated me about this. And, and the personalities involved also. So uh, it was almost a catharsis for me to write the book, to do it uh, according to the history press's limits on words. You can only use so many words. And uh, to make it as an end, uh, murder ripples. Murder really ripples. I've got a couple more that I'm working on right now, and it ripples down generations. It affects the grandchildren. It affects nieces and nephews. It affects the uh, the people who investigate it, and it affects the victims, the victims' family. It affects the suspects and the suspects' family, like the Wilsons who came to my book signing. It even affects the grandchildren of the suspects themselves. It, it ripples out like a stone in a pond, affecting everything. And, and you don't realize that until you really get involved. And that's what I, I saw in the police department and during the time my husband was a, uh, a detective, that uh, murder just goes on and on. It's not just one person versus one person. It affects the community forever. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of twists and turn, turns in the story. One of them that sticks out for me, while the Wilsons were in, incarcerated, waiting trial, microphones were hidden in their cell in the hope of some incriminating conversations. Yes, and that was perfectly legal then. It had not been done. And it was a brand new thing. And uh, but they had put it in since they didn't know what they were doing, they had put it in the uh, uh, ventilation shaft, so the quality was very poor. Uh, Sheriff Anderson took those tapes with him when he left office, and I talked to his grandson, who is no longer a friend of mine, he didn't really like the way I described his grandfather. But he said that uh, for years, Sheriff Anderson would put earphones on and listen to those tapes, trying to pick out a word here or there to prove his uh, uh, belief that someone in Battleground had done the killing. It was interesting that the brothers were put in the cell together. I mean, it was, of course, for the purpose of recording. But they were caught saying some pretty damning stuff to each other. Indeed, there were. I have read, uh, I took those from transcripts uh, that were prepared for the trial, but they didn't use them in the trial. Uh, they would have had to play the tapes, and nobody could have understood them, so they weren't used. But I did have access to those transcripts as well. So, yes, it. It was uh, really funny, too. I, I called my editor at uh, History Press, and I said, 
What is your policy regarding profanity? I mean, do I write F dash dash dash? Do I write F star star K? Or do I just <laughs> write out what they say? She said, we've never run into that before. Let me check with the manager. <laughs> and she called me back and she said, if it has to do with the development of the character, then just go ahead and write out what they said. I said, well, it's two ex-cons in a jail cell, so I guess it does develop their character. <laughs> so I, I went ahead and, and uh, used the language that they used. But that was kind of a funny bit author's point of view. So what happens to the brothers at the end of the trial? Well, they go to Walla Walla and uh, oh, that was another uh, I'm sorry, this is my graveyard humor again. Uh, they uh, several appeals, they had more appeals than anyone in Clark County history at that time. Kept getting appeals new trial uh, appeals to the governor and when at last they are executed it was by hanging and there again the same editor uh, I sent her the uh, uh, chapter about uh, the execution she said you kind of skim over the hanging itself she said could you make it more real could you make it like we can see it happening. And I said, well, I can do that, but do you really want me to? And uh, so I did. And, and you will see in that I knew exactly how many, that they had to wash the rope before they used it so that it wouldn't bounce. Uh, they waxed around where the uh, noose was so that it, the noose would slide easily. And uh, they... Uh, uh, the brothers were on a, a double gallows, and the witnesses were on the floor below, so that when the trap was open, the bodies fell right in front of the window where the witnesses were seated. And that they had bought them new clothes, a new suit, new shirt, no necktie, of course, but new clothes in which to be executed. A bizarre scene. Is there any question in your mind as to whether they murdered Joanne or not? No question whatsoever. Well, of course, the first thing is it was a copycat of the original crime that Terman had done and that Terman did. Uh, well, the Wilson brothers usually committed crimes in one another's company. The, the fact that, that Terman had done this before was not brought up at the trial. Uh, in fact, it was not brought up at the penalty phase, which is a, a surprise. But the more I looked at the police procedure, the more I looked at Terman's record particularly. Uh, Utah was a follower. He followed his older brother. Uh, he would have been better off not following his older brother. But by the time I got finished with it, uh, no, I had no doubt in my mind whatsoever that they'd gotten the right person. Just as Earl Stanley Gardner agreed that this was, they'd gotten the right people, that there was no false arrest, no false imprisonment. 
But the, the, the division in the city does continue to this day, mainly because of the uh, sheriff. You know, if the sheriff says he thinks someone in Battleground did it, the average citizen will say, oh, well, if that's what the sheriff says, not realizing the sheriff had no clue in the world what he was doing. Did the Dewey family, uh, Joanne's mom especially, find any satisfaction in the executions? Oh, satisfaction, closure. There is no such thing as closure. Uh, the execution is not going to bring her daughter back. Uh, the last of the family, Ivan, her favorite brother, uh, just passed away. Uh, the family never recovered from the loss of uh, of their daughter. Did uh, Ivan get, get a chance to read your book? No, unfortunately not. He passed away before it came out. And the rest of the family had scattered by that time. I did talk to uh, uh, Utah's uh, in-laws. His wife married, his, his widow, uh, wound up marrying five times. And I talked to her niece, and she said that uh, she told her once that of the five, she'd only loved one of them, and he committed suicide. So uh, just everybody was damaged by this crime. Uh, the Wilson family, the Dewey family, uh, the in-laws, uh, everybody was damaged. As I said, those ripples from a murder, they go on and on. So one more question about the murder itself. Um, so when this assault happened, that everyone wrote off as a domestic assault, the car took off. How long before police knew that the woman who had been beaten in front of the witnesses was, in fact, Joanne Dewey? When she didn't come home, the uh, nurse at uh, uh, at the hospital that she would have driven home with said that she had never made it to the hospital and then mentioned the screams that they had heard. And the mother, there was also a, a, a territorial thing. She went to the police and the police said, oh, Meadowglade, well, that's in the county. You'll have to talk to the sheriffs. And the sheriffs, you know, said, hey, it's in the city. Uh, but uh, uh, then uh, the uh, county supervisor uh, realized that that was probably Joanne. Uh, Clarence Bone was his name. And uh, uh, they, they got her together with the chief of police and they determined that, yes, it undoubtedly was Joanne. And then the search was on. Uh, our army base, which had been huge uh, during the war, of course, uh, was down to only 12 people lived on the 680-acre military base. And that's Vancouver Barracks. That was searched. Uh, the riverbanks were searched. The Coast Guard searched. Uh, people came from all over volunteering to search for Joanne. Uh, so they knew it was Joanne they were looking for when she when it was she that was obviously at the place going to the hospital to get a ride home and then disappearing. So they knew it was her. Well, I so appreciate your time today. Um, 
So again, you have written eight books, and they are all about the history of Vancouver. They're about Vancouver, about uh, Camas, basically southwest Washington. You know, for a girl from Los Angeles, I just fell in love with this area and the people and uh, and the incredible history that's here. And I've got uh, two more murder books to write that happen here, both, again, one uh, is, is a, a murder where they've never found the body, and uh, the other is, uh, well, in two of them, they've never found the body, but both of them were multiple murderers, so I just have to get uh, the library open from this pandemic so that I can double-check the uh, details that I've got. Uh, the one, Dennis Keith Smith, uh, his first murder was his own sister uh, because she was going to call the police for him s stealing her car. And then he uh, he killed later a woman he uh, met in a bar. And they think he killed two more people in Texas. But uh, his other, his surviving sister has given me all of the information on him. The, the details that law enforcement gave me about Joanne Dewey, Dennis Smith's sister, has been supplying me with uh, the trial transcript and his medical records and clippings and everything else. So I am very fortunate that people have stepped forward to help me with these things. I can imagine that that would make it a lot easier. Any additional information must be so helpful. Absolutely. You know, what was she wearing? What was uh, what was the weather like? Uh, was there a moon? Was it hot? Was it raining? What was it like? And you can kind of fit yourself into that scene. So the more details you can get, the better. Yes, yes, for sure. Well, my gosh, this has been so great. Uh, I appreciate your time so much. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. You can tell I like to talk. Again, I have been speaking to Pat Gelada. She is the author of The Murder of Joanne Dewey in Vancouver, Washington. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!